Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy and cybersecurity. I'm Arj, I'm joined again by Jordan. Hi Jordan, how are you? Hey Arj, I'm good. Looking forward to a good chat on this lovely Friday afternoon. We're talking about negotiating with terrorists, I suppose. The age-old question. <laughs> the age-old question. Not one I've stared into personally, but um, yeah, it is the hottest question going around at the moment. Should companies pay a ransom to a hacker? It's a question that until recently I've only really thought about in the context of action movies, so... I think it's quite a tricky one, which, you know, some of the media about the Medibank breach would suggest it's not a tricky one, but I think there's a lot to dig into here. We're going to talk about how in some quarters the position is cut and dried, but it's, there's actually a lot of pros and cons around it, uh, some of which have been aired, but we're going to chat about that. And the conversation we think is actually a bit of a gate opener into a sort of broader conversation as well about how we're thinking about data and data breaches. So it's going to be fun. But yeah, as you said, the trigger obviously for this chat is... The Medibank breach, which uh, quite a horrific breach, frankly. Um, it was revealed last month and since been confirmed that some 9.7 million Australians have had their data stolen, their sensitive health insurance, health claims data. So the stolen data includes names, date of births, addresses, phone numbers, and email addresses. But it also, for a subset of customers, about 500,000 all up, includes their claims data, which includes things like the medical service provider, where customers receive certain medical services, uh, specific medical codes that tell you about the kind of diagnosis and the procedures that they've uh, been administered. Very, very rich and sensitive information there incredibly sensitive the most sensitive you know we might talk about that in more detail in a minute but just dwelling on that for a second diagnoses and procedures that could be trauma counseling that could be alcohol gambling addictions counseling services things related to you know drug addiction that could be abortion or you know abortion related services this is the most sensitive data about half a million people that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, it's funny how quickly you get used to and complacent with the impact of a data breach. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we were looking at the Optus data breach and seeing kind of just all manner of identity documents, you know, passports and driver's licenses being exposed and feeling quite horrified by that. And then this just seems to step it up to a whole other level. Yeah, Optus, Optus managed to have the worst data breach in Australia's history for like two weeks until they were top. But another quite interesting thing is the comparison between those two. They are both major terrible data breaches, but one is really focused on identity information and financial harm and identity crime that might flow from that. And the other is focused on health data and the kind of emotional distress and, and potential for blackmail, potential for, for reputational and other relationship harms that can flow from that. They're interesting to sit next to each other because the kinds of responses and the kinds of remediation actions can be quite different as well. Part and parcel with these breaches now is this extortion-based business model. We've seen the attackers access this incredibly sensitive information and then they have issued a ransom demand of some 10 million US dollars to Medibank. 
In the last week, we learned Medibank had ruled out that it was going to pay any such ransom. And, you know, they reportedly took in a lot of expert advice and guidance before coming to that decision. And the rationale given by the CEO was essentially that even if we paid it, there's only a limited chance that paying it would see that that data be returned to us or that we could get a guarantee that it wouldn't be published or unsold anyway. And this idea that paying it might make Medibank an even bigger target because they confirm in the minds of hackers everywhere that they're a company that pays ransoms. So yeah, the decision's been welcomed by the government, which as we'll talk about, has a sort of long-standing policy that companies not pay the ransom. In response to Medibank making that decision, literally almost overnight, the hackers have acted on their promise. So the deadline expired. They gave Medibank a deadline saying, you need to pay us this ransom by this given time. And upon expiry of that deadline, the hackers immediately started to release data in the early hours of the next morning, which was Wednesday. To give you a sense of how aware hackers are about the sensitivity of the information and how to leverage it in terms of maximum pain, they've started to release the data you know, in different ways and in different categories. So one of the things they did in one of their releases was to have a so-called good list and a naughty list. So the naughty list, I think, had the data of people who may have been dealing with alcohol issues or drug issues and sort of that was kind of couched as the naughty list in order to sort of create additional pressure from those customers and then a day later even more targeted releases of information they released a csv file titled abortions.csv which ostensibly had information about uh, women who had sought abortion services or medical care relating to pregnancies then a day later, another CSV that contains information about Medibank customers who are dealing with mental health and alcohol issues. So really sort of ramping up the leverage on what this means and this harm and using that in the context of these extortion demands. The hackers have also posted some screenshots of the dialogue that they've been having with Medibank about whether Medibank would pay the ransom or not. We're clearly dealing with, and I hate to use the word, quite sophisticated hackers in the sense of they're very aware of how to capitalize and make use on the kind of information they have. Some of the screenshots they posted about their dialogues with Medibank suggest that too. The Optus data breach seemed to legitimately not be sophisticated. That's just somebody discovered a open API and downloaded some data. This is a sophisticated organization, group of people with a range of different expertise in cyber hacking, and but also in data, right? In understanding the data from the repositories that they've gotten access to, understanding what's important, pulling it down filtering it, examining it, identifying what's dangerous, what's going to cause the most pain. We've just heard uh, as we record this from the AFP that those actors are cybercrime groups based in Russia, variously affiliated with other, other groups elsewhere as well. So part of an operation that you know does this for a living, so to speak. I think one of the notable aspects of this breach, and you know, to a certain extent also the Optus one, is this really front-footed federal government response and law enforcement response. According to Claire O'Neill, who's the cybersecurity minister, hundreds of people within government are working to support Medibank's response to the incident and to help 
protect affected customers. You know, you've got the ASD, Australian Signals Directorate, that's Digital Spy Agency, providing technical advice. You've got the AFP with two separate projects, one investigating the crime itself, coordinating with Commonwealth agencies and other Five Eyes law enforcement partners. And you've got also AFP Operation Guardian, which is focused on identifying people who are at risk of identity fraud and monitoring for exploitation of the data on the dark web. You've got Services Australia in the health department working with Medibank to understand what's been exposed, coordinating all of this, the National Coordination Mechanism, which is a, a national crisis response mechanism that brings federal, state and private governments and private sector actors together for crisis response, which was initially developed for COVID. And this is the first time it's been activated for a non-COVID purpose, but this you know big national coordination mechanism bringing everyone together talking to social media companies to try to limit circulation of data on the open internet state police working with affected individuals organizing mental health support and counseling like there's this massive kind of apparatus of of government support and activity that's really leapt into action in response to this data breach, which I've never seen before. It's quite spectacular to watch. You know, it, it kind of, again, exposes, I think, the naivety around a view that this is just a matter for a business and its customers. I think when we see the scale of Optus and then we see the just the harm of a Medibank-style breach, it really does take that kind of national coordination. Yeah, for sure. It's good to see a decent chunk of that focused on individuals. You have half a million Australians who are really significantly harmed by this, and you've got some subset of those whose lives may be really significantly affected by exposure of you know information about medical or, or addiction or other kind of treatments that they've had. This is a really significant impact on a really significant number of Australians. One of the things that really irritates me about coverage of some of these events is when we talk about the victim organisation, which, yes, they are a victim and, yes, it's a criminal act. The true victims here are the individuals, the people who are affected by the publishing of their information. You know, I'm less excited about government mobilisation to protect a victim organisation than I am excited about government mobilisation to protect the specific affected individuals. And I think that's why this conversation we're about to have and this debate about whether you pay a ransom is actually so interesting because it knits in all of those considerations. If you look at it just purely in terms of a, a government position on cybercrime and, you know, how do we reduce the incentives for attackers, then, you know, you have a very clear position, don't ever pay ransoms. But when we look at that bigger picture of who's impacted by cybercrime, it immediately gets more complicated. So let's talk about that now if you're up for it. I'm going to start with the government position. For many years now, the government position has been you do not pay ransoms. The Australian Cybersecurity Centre's website says in very clear terms, never pay a ransom. There's no couching at all. If we look at the ransomware action plan that the Australian government released in 2021 October, so this would be the previous Morrison government, and this was their first ransomware action plan, it has a statement in it that says the Australian government does not condone ransom payments being made to cyber criminals. It's not just one side of politics. The Labor Party prior to the election released a ransomware strategy, and it too had a focus on 
you know, how do we ensure that Australia doesn't create a reputation as a country that pays and talked a lot about the idea of discouraging the payment of ransom. It's also international. The former director of the National Cybersecurity Centre in the UK, Kieran Martin, who's actually in town at the moment, quoted as saying, you know, that if he had one policy card to play, he would ask for an examination of whether the law should change to make it illegal for UK organisations to pay ransoms. We've heard similar language from Chris Krebs, who was the former director of the US Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. So from a government perspective, it's cut and dried. You do not pay ransoms. That makes perfect sense as a policy position. Every cent you pay into a ransom finances this industry. These are well-organized, large organizations. They're run as if they are a software company. They've got call centers. They've got customer support. They've got, you know, divisions of, of labor and expertise in various areas. It's a whole ecosystem and it's funded by people paying ransoms. But if it's my information, I'm fortunately not a Medibank customer, but if it was my information, I'd be pretty keen for them to pay a ransom. If you're negotiating with terrorists, if you've got a hostage situation or whatever, if it's my parents, if I'm the one that's going to be harmed, if I'm the hostage absolutely negotiate with the terrorists. I don't want to cop that harm. And I think there's a pretty strong argument on behalf of that half a million affected customers to say, well, I get the abstract policy position. I get the incentives argument and so on. But just this once, with my personal information, can we please maybe consider it? The Home Affairs Secretary is quoted in the, in Labor's ransomware strategy document from, from last year saying that this is a real moral dilemma. And it's a moral dilemma, like you, equated to the sort of moral dilemma that families face when there's a kidnapping. And for that reason, governments typically don't outlaw ransoms. And we heard Dan Tian, who's Australia's former cybersecurity minister, uh, also making that point, which is that we don't outlaw it because there are going to be those sort of exceptional cases. Jeremy Kirk, who writes on this space, sort of talked about this idea that Medibank finds itself in a no-win situation. I mean, if they pay, they can't be guaranteed that that data is going to be destroyed or and that it won't be sold on anyway. So that sort of tips the needle in favour of, well, then we should never pay but then they also know not paying could actually lead to the sort of data dump that we're now seeing and as i've just as i said earlier we were talking about actors that know how to maximize harm and they are essentially now doing it with a with an edge as well with spite because they've been told we're not paying you i get the argument also that even if you don't pay they might still then on sell it anyway. But when you think about the sort of harm that comes from an actor that is aggravated by someone not paying and publicly saying, we're not going to listen to you, and then creating these file names, you're really sort of staring into some very serious harm. So it's incredibly complex. It is convincing to a certain extent when people say, well, these are a criminal gang who've just robbed you. It's hard to trust them to delete the data if you pay them. On the other hand, these gangs have pretty solid incentives in order to encourage people to pay ransoms. There's a really strong incentive for them to at least appear as if they're deleting the data, right? Like maybe they do something with it on the down low in the background. Maybe they sell it privately and let other people monetize it. You can never guarantee that they're not going to do that. But also in terms of the incentives in the ecosystem, these organizations want to be trustworthy in terms of the paying of the ransom. So, you know, it, it's not quite as cut and dry as that 
you know, claim that they're criminals, you absolutely can't trust them. I think there are incentives for these organisations to at least be a little bit trustworthy in that regard. I guess the other thought I always had around this idea from from the company's perspective, I mean, the companies find themselves, I think, in a quite a challenging situation around this payment policy, which is that there's clearly a kind of collective good argument. There's this sort of argument that, you know, we need to not pay ransoms to basically undermine this business model so that other businesses like us don't get targeted again because we are building a reputation as a country that pays. And it's really challenging because these are essentially, for Medibank and even Optus, these are essentially, I would argue, existentially threatening kind of attacks. Like they are looking at a ransom situation and they're looking at a data dump that if it doesn't kill their business it's going to come close yeah it's going to come very close so even looking at it just from the self-interest of the company i can see that it's a very difficult decision for them to make because this idea that if we pay today we might get targeted again in the future i mean this is this is the big one this is like the black swan event for them like they're not thinking about I would imagine they're not thinking about the decision they make today based on whether it will reduce the likelihood of it happening again tomorrow. Like it is about what can I do today to minimize the impact of this as much as possible. When you're facing an existential crisis, you're not tucking money away for the next existential crisis, right? right? You're dealing with what's in front of you. And so, you know, surely part of their calculus is around can we mitigate the duty of care to our customers as much as possible? And that becomes really a really difficult thing about you know whether they want to roll that dice. The other thing also, even from a financial perspective, the level of exposure of the data now in response to them saying we're not going to pay the ransom, you know, these naughty lists and these abortion lists, they're probably giving more energy to the class actions. You know, the the, the lawyers have already found you know bonded together to sort of start up the class actions, and so the legal costs are likely to be heightened down the road as well. Um, now, and I'm not suggesting that this is the only prism to look at this, this sort of financial calculus or even the self-preservation of the business calculus, because as you said earlier, this kind of you know victim view of the companies is not the way to think about it. It's about the broader uh, you know, population that are affected. But I'm just, you know, even from the perspective of the business, it's a lot more of a complicated decision. What should the business's priorities be here? Because you've got, as far as I see, kind of three competing priorities. You've got the customers who are affected by the breach. What can Medibank do to decrease the harm that those customers are going to feel? You've got the company's own internal incentives, which largely align with their customers, honestly. You want to decrease the harm of the breach. You want to shut it down as much as possible. Claw the data back if you can. And you've got the national policy interest of not paying hackers. And two of those align towards paying the ransom. It's in the customers and quite possibly in the in the business's interest. Yes, the, the criminal gang is not going to... 100% reliably delete the data, but I think undeniably paying the ransom is going to decrease the circulation of this data. They're not going to be putting out lists, they're not going to be publicizing it. Here is a concrete action 
that you can take to minimize the harm to your customers. And by not paying the ransom, you're privileging this ongoing long-term policy position over a concrete action that you can do to reduce harm to your customers. If you were a customer, you'd be pretty unhappy with that decision. There's also a gray zone, I think, that's in between. It's also not just a binary of pay or don't pay. For companies, there could be value in not immediately rejecting the the demand to pay, but buying time because rejecting the request to pay immediately sees the data get dumped. But buying time potentially gives a window for law enforcement to come in, potentially identify the hackers that are involved and potentially exact some kind of concession from them around the data. And that very much depends on the sophistication, there's that word again, of the attackers. But we saw in Optus that it wasn't a particularly sophisticated person. It, it, you know, It's someone that managed to sort of stumble upon the open window, took the data, tried their luck with a ransom request. Optus didn't pay, but clearly in that time frame, Australian law enforcement had an ability to kind of, we, we talked about this on our in our Optus podcast, but do a little bit of a shakedown on the attacker and say, we know who you are. You know, your OPSEC, your operational security hasn't been that great. So we know who you are. You might want to back away. And sure enough, we saw them say that they had deleted the data and we saw them issue an apology. So there's also that kind of very gray in between paying and not paying, which is just a sort of strategic response. It just underscores the point that it's by no means simple. I think there's a broader point that Paying or not paying the ransom is just one way of attacking the ransomware business model. This is something that was in that the pre-election labor policy as well, that you need a number of different approaches of attacking this business model and not paying ransoms is one of them. You need organizations to get better at preventing compromise in the first place. You need real consequences for these ransomware gangs and you need resilience after the fact to try to decrease the value of the data all up. Just before recording, we came off the AFP press conference announcing that they've discovered that it's a Russian gang and that they're working with Interpol and international policing organizations to try to pursue them, which, given our relationship with Russia at the moment and the fact that Russia, in fact, has a section of their constitution that prohibits extradition, I think that's pretty unlikely to get significant results. But there needs to be some way of exerting pressure on these gangs, some way of decreasing this other than putting all of the weight on, you know, it's your responsibility not to pay this ransom. If we think more holistically about how do you attack the business model, I think you can get to a kind of more nuanced position. Yeah. The final thing I guess I was struck by was what I felt was a reevaluation of data based on its ethical origin. I think the conversations we've had in the wake of this breach about warning people against going and looking for the data or even talking about the breach and what's in it because of the fact that it's hacked and that not only encourages the hacker, but just generally that we should view that that data is off limits for us to kind of look at either out of curiosity or for any other reason. Um, The idea that that should be off limits because it was private data and just because it's hacked and it's now out there and it's public does not now give it that legitimacy as a sort of a thing we share. For me, it brought my mind back to the Panama Papers, which it might seem like I'm making a bit of a leap here, but 
you know, in 2016, there was the sort of famous leak of papers called the Panama Papers from a, a firm called Mossack Fonseca. They were sort of an off, offshore law firm and that did trusts and, you know, all of those kind of things for people who are wealthy and, and you know, heads of states and politicians. And that data found its way into a newsroom and had immense kind of value from a newsroom perspective because it had all this public interest stuff around tax avoidance and corruption and crime. There seemed to be very little pause about opening it up to like 150 journalists around the world to pour through and find what they could find that might be of public interest. And we saw story after story published. I wonder now, given kind of this kind of reshaping of attitudes, because that data source, that Mossack Fonseca trove, was the product of a hack, a product of a breach of security. I wonder now whether we would look upon that activity in the same way, given the way we're thinking about data. What if there were public interest stories in the Medibank data trove? Would it be okay? Would we feel comfortable with people looking through it for those public interest stories. What if it wasn't Medibank? What if it was Big Four Bank and it was financial transactions? There's a real kind of rethinking, I think, about those attitudes we have towards data, which I think is a good thing. It would be a very brave newsroom with Claire O'Neill and other federal government officials being so vocal about the dog act of the hack and and how awful it is for anyone to try to profit on this. But yeah, it's a really good point, right? One thing I find interesting in that is there's this quite old idea that's primarily in US law that there's no right to privacy in public, that once I step outside of the front of my house... I am in the public domain and, you know, I have no right to privacy in regard to what you see me do on the side of the street or where I walk or whatever. And it's just a silly idea, right? We obviously have a a much broader right to privacy that covers who we are and where we go and what we do, regardless of whether or not we're in or outside of our home or something. What you've just pointed to is this kind of increasingly kind of shifting or nuanced idea of privacy, right? You're describing a shift from like privacy as secrecy or privacy as, you know, as soon as something becomes known, becomes in the public domain, then it's fair game and you can do whatever you like, to this more nuanced position which is regardless of whether it's in the public domain, there are still certain purposes for which you just shouldn't use that data. You can't use that data to discriminate against me or the reporting would have to be incredibly significantly in the public interest to warrant the invasion of privacy. Were the Panama Papers to happen today, I think there would be a much more nuanced conversation about which stories are appropriate to tell out of this trove of documents, if any, I don't know, there's, there's so many really interesting kind of nuances coming out of that, right? And we got off the pay the ransom discussion a little bit at the end to talk about you know, attacking the business model more broadly or, you know, how we even think about privacy and public information and the you know federal government's exhortations not to report on it, not to publish information about it. It's, it's an easy one to kind of go into rabbit holes. I, I think, though, that thinking about privacy in its purest form is part of what makes the ransom payment discussion more complex than it is because you are staring into not just a security strategy business model question, but you're looking at like harm and privacy impacts on individuals. But um, I think we got there. I feel like I feel like our objective, I think, when we set off was to say like, this is not simple. Yeah, we, we've successfully complicated the issue. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I think we have very, very successfully complicated the issue. 
it's actually been really disconcerting to watch this one, this breach. The data and the potential impacts are really upsetting. The scale of the public response has been quite promising, I think. I really do like seeing all of the might of the Australian federal government and various administrative authorities kicking into gear to try to protect people. So that's my silver lining. I'll take a silver lining conclusion any day of the week at the moment. We'll see if there's any interesting developments before we talk next week. Otherwise, I'll catch you next week and we can complicate some other issues. (laughs) I look forward to it. Thanks.